The New York City Housing Authority, which manages public housing in New York City, has been so systematically starved of funding that it's been thrown into a state of fiscal desperation. The leadership of NYCHA feels as if it's been left with no choice but to lease out public housing land for private development in a desperate attempt at generating revenue for repairs. So New York City is going to have market rate luxury development standing right beside dilapidated public housing. What message does it send to the world that New York City is erecting a visual tale of two cities? What psychological impact will it have on tenants who will see luxury towers being constructed while their own homes are crumbling in disrepair? New York City Councilman Richie Torres. At 31, he's the city's youngest elected official. His mantra, if you do nothing, nothing will change. If you see something, say something. First, the news. Trying to make it real compared to what? New York City's 15th district has a superstar councilman, the youngest person ever elected to city government, Richie Torres. He and I first met when Bard College hosted a program provocatively titled Geographies of Injustice. Its premise rooted in history, perpetuated by current events. Put simply, Geographies of Injustice marks that crossroads where power, economics, expedience, and race point to a destiny of injustice for millions of people. In New York City, the wealthiest and most under-the-radar racially conflicted city in the nation, icon of American empire and enterprise, home to Wall Street, where enslaved Africans were brought to port and to market, building the city's fortunes. What this now means for Richie Torres' constituents, icons too, for millions of everyday Americans of every hue, is what this advocate for the right to affordable housing calls a tale of two cities. Here's Richie Torres. Nowhere is the tale of two cities more pronounced than in New York City. Right? We're the wealthiest city in the world. Right? Every year we pass an $80 billion budget. Uh, we're surrounded by deep-pocketed industries like real estate and finance and entertainment. And yet, despite all the, the considerable wealth that we have in New York City, we, we are equally notorious for savage inequality. And you see it in, in our public housing stock. We have the largest collection of affordable housing, public housing, here in New York City operated by the New York City Housing Authority. And last winter, we came to discover that public housing was so chronically underfunded, so poorly managed, so neglected, that well over 300,000 New Yorkers were deprived of heat and hot water. Right? So in the wealthiest city in the world, we're failing to even guarantee the basic necessities of life, like heat and hot water to our own residents. And so that's the contradiction in which all of us live here in New York. It is so easy to dismiss the people in public housing saying, well, you know, and then we come up with a litany of blaming the victim for the crime. Let's start with talking about who lives in public housing and why they live there, especially in this framework of these two cities within one right that unfortunately the narrative that everyone can pull themselves by their own bootstraps, that one's net worth is a reflection of your moral worth, and that all that matters is the individual. That's a narrative that resonates widely in American life, but of course the reality is far more complicated. You know, the people who live in public housing are often caricatured as government dependents or welfare queens. But in fact, the people who live in public housing, the overwhelming majority of them are productive, working-class members of society. The largest employer in public housing in the New York City Housing Authority is the Department of Education, the NYPD, NYCHA itself, the MTA. And so public housing is a safety net that stabilizes the very public workforce 
that makes New York City move and work every single day. Even if we do not live in public housing, all of us benefit from the stability that it gives to our public workforce. So what you're saying is essentially that the people who make the city of New York work, the employees of the police department, the fire department, the Department of Education, those are the people who live in public housing? Yes, a a substantial share of the public sector calls public housing home on public housing for their stability in life. Going to that disparity between the way we think of public housing and the facts of who lives in public housing, why do people who essentially have full-time positions in the public sector have to live in public housing? I think you hit the nail on the head. I think we've been long operating under the assumption right, that if you're a law-abiding citizen and you play by the rules, then you will have the ability to provide you and your family with a decent life. And that is no longer a guarantee in New York City. The median rent in Manhattan is upward of $3,000 a year, a month. The same is true in Brooklyn. Right? And so even if you have a solidly middle-class job, you cannot afford to live in an increasing share of New York City. Doing the math, if your average rate market apartment for a family of four is $3,000 a month, then that means that you, you know, when banks look at ratios for mortgage, they say your housing cost should be no higher than 25% of your income. So that means that at 3000 a month, your income should be 12000 a month, which means that your annual income, 12 times 12000 should be 144000 a year in order to afford a basic rate market apartment for a family of four. What is the average income for a city, a full-time city employee? I don't know the average income of a full-time city employee. I do know that nearly 50% of New Yorkers live near or at the poverty line. We know that the median income in public housing is about in the range of $20,000 a year. Um, But certainly the median income of New Yorkers is far below the dollar amount that one would need to afford a rental unit in the most expensive parts of the city, especially in Manhattan and Brooklyn and increasingly in Queens. Well, teachers, I believe, earn 40 to 45 as a basic teacher salary. So do police officers as a starting salary. All right. So right there we have the problem. $144,000 a year is what you need in income for a basic rate market apartment. And I really like to use teachers because that is the one job that many people at the entry level not only need one degree, but two. Yeah. It's, it's a high-skilled position. Yes. It's a notion that the workforce lacks skills and that's the reason for poverty. Well, that myth is put to rest by the experience of teachers who are highly skilled but are insufficiently compensated to afford to live in New York City. When you and I first met, one of the things that really struck me was this conversation about housing inequity and about how our economy, well, our mythology causes us not to have basic critical thinking skills that would allow us to address this issue as we've just laid it out. And frankly, as this conversation you and I have had is one that I have not heard basically through our normal media channels. I hadn't thought about it before I heard you speak. And that's why I'm so grateful to you for being on the show today. So let's start back again. What does affordable housing really mean? There is no single definition of affordable housing. Because when you think of the term affordable housing, the question that comes to mind is affordable for whom? And so there are two technical definitions, right? 
the one that I prefer is the definition that holds that it's housing where the household pays no more than 30% of its gross adjusted income. Right? Anything that exceeds 30% would be seen as a serious rent burden on the family. But then you have a definition that is based upon a metric known as area median income. So the federal government assigns area median incomes to various regions throughout the country. And here in New York City, the area median income is somewhere in the range of $80,000 a year. And the Bronx, which is one of the poorest counties in the country, has the same area median income as Manhattan, as Westchester County, as Rockland County, as many other wealthier counties. So it's, it's the definition that we use skews the average in a much higher direction, making the housing much less affordable to poor residents who live in New York City. Right, so I'll give you a more concrete example. We define low-income housing here in New York City as 60% of AFI, which is about $50,000 a year. 50000 is double the median income in my district. What we call low-income housing is double what most of my constituents can afford. Constituents are hardworking people, I know, but... Working people who are living at the margins and who are struggling to make ends meet and who on average earn $25,000 a year. And the basic kind of work that they do? Public sector employment, human services retail, construction, it varies widely. Okay. Once again, disparaging the stereotypes, not necessarily people who just didn't go to school and who just didn't want to stay in school or not necessarily that. These are people who well, are hardworking people. Obviously, there's a, so I, I want to be intellectually honest. There is a significant segment of the population that did forego a college education, but it was once the case that you could have a solidly middle-class life, even in the absence of a college education, right, mm-hmm. in fields like construction. Um, but those opportunities have become vanishingly rare. That is the issue, because when I said it, I wasn't necessarily even thinking about foregoing a college education. Right now, I'm recording this from upstate New York, kind of central upstate New York. And... Um, I used to live in Fairfield County, Connecticut, and I once took a drive from over here and drove over there, and I could just see, my God, I'd never seen the contrast before. I moved up here because I love the Hudson River Valley, and I moved out of the city and wanted to stay in New York State, and I moved to the Hudson River Valley. But the disparity between driving you know, mile by mile, I took the back routes across and did a diagonal. It was the most instructive drive I've ever taken because it took me through some towns in upstate New York that are now, you'd have to call them ghost towns almost, areas that would have been the hub, yeah. a movie theater with a few local restaurants, gone, just vacant And obviously there are areas of the city like that, but these were towns that were also built by hardworking people in a variety of areas of enterprise, some farming, but other areas of enterprise. And I think that is what makes this conversation we're having so important, because it isn't just the cities that are undergoing this. What makes it more unconscionable in the city is that we have no excuse, right? New York City has the resources to address deeply rooted inequality. What we lack is the political will, right? There are some localities, some towns in the United States that genuinely lack the resources to tackle poverty. That is hardly true of New York City. When we come back, more with our guest, New York City Councilman Richie Torres, after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back with our guest, Councilman Richie Torres of New York City. And in 2014, he became New York City's youngest elected official. How did you, I want to say, how did you become you? (laughs) You're from New York City. How did you 
start this trajectory that would have you on the city council, that would bring you to the city council? Well, I grew up in a public housing development in in the Bronx known as Throgs Neck Houses, which incidentally is right across the street from Trump Golf Course. And I often share with people that when the golf course was undergoing construction, it unleashed a skunk infestation. So I, I, I often say that I've been smelling the stench of Donald Trump before he became president. But when I when I grew up in public housing, you know, I grew up facing many of the same conditions that the tenants are facing today. Leaks and mold and mildew and I was often hospitalized for asthma at the local public hospital, Jacoby Hospital. I was raised by a single mother who often has to raise three children on little more than minimum wage. There was a time when the minimum wage was as low as five dollars an hour. And, you know, I've had two brothers in prison. I've had a lifelong struggle with depression. I've had struggles with substance abuse. But despite all the challenges that I grew up facing, the one constant that I had in my life, beyond the love of my mother, was a stable, affordable home, was public housing. I had the peace of mind that came with living in a home that I could afford. And I came to see in my own upbringing the value of public housing, the value of affordable housing, as more than brick and mortar, but as a foundation on which to build a better life for myself. And so I entered public life in the city council on a mission to preserve the very safety net that made it possible for a poor kid from the Bronx to rise. Making that your mission... Give us a middle point here. You you mentioned the stability, thank goodness, of your mother's love and, and of having a roof over your head, a stable roof over your head. But what was the turning point when you mentioned that your father was not with your family? May I ask what separated your family? I only spent one full day with my father when I was visiting my two half-brothers in prison. But he had no active role in my life at all, and I, and I, I honestly couldn't tell you why. Mm. So, life? Life, I mean, yeah. Life. He's a stranger to me. I know nothing about him. So, here's an alienated father, and probably life did that to him, too. You talk about growing up with depression as a fact of your life. We can talk about what happens um, What happens to a dream deferred? You know, we can talk about raisins in the sun. Um, but in your case, can you think of a specific turning point that said you weren't going to follow the direction of your half-siblings? You weren't going to be alienated like your father. You were going to be you? It might have been an uneventful turning point. But I remember when I was in high school and I joined the law team, I participated in a form of debate known as moot court, which is modeled after appellate argument. You deliver an argument before a panel of judges in the face of rigorous, relentless questioning. And through moot court, I came to develop intellectual self-confidence. I came to discover talents I never thought I had. I was one of the best in the city. And so that, that self-confidence, and it was important to me as a person of color because I had, you know, I had been in IGC classes where I was conditioned to think of myself as an intellectual inferior because of the color of my skin. And for the first time, I participated in an activity where I was the most intellectually dominant person in the room, right? And I think that that self-confidence that I forged in my high school years was a factor in my eventual election as a city council member. I'm just amazed at the currents that come together then in this conversation. That amazing image of the skunk infestation unleashed by Trump having turned this 200, or the city having turned this 200-acre lot into a golf course for Donald Trump, his buying the property, but the city doing the work, and then his also having at least a five-year tax abatement 
for the city having done that work for him. And we should bring in the fact that some of this was done under Mayor Rudolph Giuliani at the time, which is another name that then becomes important in all of this. And the issue that people will always say when you talk about public housing, when you talk about education, well, we just don't have the money. Well, I guess I want to I want to start with your observation about the subsidies. My understanding is the Trump golf course received upward of a hundred billion dollars in subsidy. Right, so more money has been spent on the construction of a Trump golf course that is gated from the community it purports to serve than on the homes of the residents who live in Throgsneck. Right, and so can you imagine the message that sends to the largely families of color who live in Throgsneck housing right? that? The quality of their housing, the safety of their housing matters less than subsidies for Donald Trump. On segregation, it's an irony that New York City, which purports to be cosmopolitan, which is one of the most diversities in the world, where 200 languages are spoken, has a deeply segregated school system. In fact, the most segregated in the country, more segregated than the legacy of Jim Crow in the South. But the scandal is not that we're failing to desegregate our schools. The scandal is that we're not even trying. For decades, New York City has had no real commitment to integrating classrooms. And that, to me, is as definitive a sign as any, that the conservative movement has won the debate on education so thoroughly that not even self-proclaimed progressives speak about the need to desegregate our schools. Right? The conversation is largely centered around educational funding, fiscal equity. But it never occurs to these people that fiscal inequity is not the problem. It is a symptom of a segregated school system. I remember years ago I was working at WNYC. I I can't even count the number of years, but it was 20 years ago at least. And we were all so excited about the fact that we had just gotten a tax cut. We were going to get in our paychecks at that point, I think it was like $25 extra a week because we'd gotten a tax cut. But then being a news entity, we sat down and really did the math and realized that the tax cut had come at the expense of layoffs of city workers. It was the average everyday person who was paying for this tax cut. And then when you look at uh, how any layoffs impact communities, there's, there's the impact ratio. I think at that point it was 7 to 1. I think now uh, sometimes it's listed as 11 to 1, depending on where the actual fact of the layoff happens. But what that then caused. So when you talk about they see this as the symptom, but they never look at the cause, it always strikes me that if more people were working, then you would have higher revenues for the cities in the first place. And if more people were working at an equitable income, then those equitable incomes proportionately would also generate higher revenue for the city in terms of base taxes. There's no question about it. All of it is interconnected. If you had a strong and vibrant middle class, you would have a stronger base of taxpayers who generate more revenue for the public sector. And you would have a stronger base of consumers who would generate more revenue for the private sector. And that's classic Keynesian economics, which I believe is true to real life. But instead, we've adopted public policies that have systematically undercut the middle class and in turn has undercut the revenues that the government receives and the consumption in the private sector. Ultimately, it's a lose-lose. Yes, it is a lose-lose. Ultimately, what's interesting is that all of this nevertheless produces a Richie Torres and a Janice Adams, but it produces a Richie Torres. What did you do after that turning point moment, that light bulb moment for you when you realized who you were, your core, your strength in that debating club? Where'd you go to school? So there, you know, life took a turn for the worse. So I, I went to NYU, but then I had a severe struggle with depression. And so I took a leave of absence so that I could undergo 
treatment. And I have to be honest with you, there were moments when the depression was so severe that I even contemplated taking my own life. And then I had an opportunity to be an employee of the New York City Council. And it was the combination of employment in the council and psychotherapy and medication that made it possible for me to recover. And when I was in the city council as an employee, I built a reputation. I would organize tenant associations and housing, both public and private. I would publicly shame landlords to force them to make repairs. I built a reputation for effective advocacy on behalf of tenants. And when I made the decision to run for public office, I had a strong base of support from the very tenants for whom I had been advocating as a staffer in the city council. Thank you so much for sharing that. When we come back, more with our guest, New York City Councilman Richie Torres, after the break. We're back with our guest, Councilman Richie Torres of New York City. You know, we've talked about issues of public housing. We've talked about the hypocrisies of this two cities within one. We've talked about the conservative thrust that has led to some of the greatest inequities, with New York City being iconic of what's happening across the nation. But where do we go from here? What are some of the steps that we need to do that you consider reparative, restorative? I think all of the problems that we have raised have deep roots, right, have been decades, centuries, in the making, so none of these problems are going to be solved overnight. But I'm, I'm deeply shaped by Maslow's concept of self-actualization. That, that for me, the purpose of government, culture, society, everything is to lift people, is to create conditions in which all of us can flourish as individuals, as professionals. Right? Maslow holds that the highest need is self-actualization, but in order to achieve self-actualization, we all require stability in our lives. We require access to health care, access to safe, decent, affordable housing, access to a quality education, access to transit, access to fresh food. Right? So the role of me as a policymaker is to ensure that every New Yorker, every American has all the foundations on which to build a better life for themselves and their family. Right? That's how I view myself as a policymaker. And we're never going to achieve perfection, but we can achieve progress. We have to constantly move the ball forward. Right now, you have a new initiative that really looks at the economic pillar in terms of making this happen. Cashless business, what does that mean? So when you open a dollar bill, it reads, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. And yet, even if you have legal tender with the full faith and credit of the United States behind it, there's a rising tide of businesses that refuse to accept cash that will only accept credit. These are known as cashless businesses. We're living in an increasingly cashless marketplace. And my question is, what implications will a cashless marketplace have for the most vulnerable members of our society, for those who have no access to credit? What impact will it have on the 60,000 New Yorkers who live in the municipal shelter system? What impact will it have on the 500,000 New Yorkers who are undocumented? What impact will it have on the nearly 25% of New Yorkers who are underbanked, who are disproportionately people of color? Right? Even though a cashless business model might seem neutral on the surface, it has a real-world exclusionary effect on the undocumented, on the impoverished, and on the underbanked. And so I think the cashless business model lies at the intersection of race and class. If you do have access to credit, there are many people who prefer cash payment because it's more protective of their privacy, because it does not involve the sharing of private information. We're living in a time where private companies like Google and Facebook are collecting vast quantities of our private information. So I think the principles at stake here are equality and privacy. You use the term underbanked. Specifically, what does that mean? 
poorest neighborhoods in our city lack access to traditional banking. Right? There are neighborhoods where there is not a single bank in the neighborhood. There are only predatory lending shops. And a substantial share of New Yorkers have no bank account, have no credit rating, or have too abysmal a credit rating to qualify for credit. And if you have no access to credit, then you have no means of purchasing food and clothing in a cashless marketplace that refuses to accept cash. So cashless, well, then someone will say, well, but they could use a debit card or they could use a prepaid I mean, cash if, card. If, if Is you that... have no bank account, then you have no debit card. And a prepaid card? I'm not aware of whether the, uh, the undocumented people can obtain how easily you could obtain a prepaid card. The barriers are... Re- and here's the analogy that I use, that making credit a requirement for consumption is a little like making identification a requirement for voting, right? The effect is the same. It disempowers, it disadvantages communities of color. That is a real-world effect. Disempowers and disadvantages people who, by basic human decency and human rights, should be have access to all of the above. Even if you have the best of intentions, it is discriminatory in effect, right? And since 1964, with the enactment of the Civil Rights Act, right, there has been a legal guarantee against both discrimination in intent and discrimination in effect in what are known as public accommodations. Private businesses are public accommodations, are part of a public marketplace and therefore have a responsibility to treat all of their customers equally, regardless of whether their customers are paying by cash or by credit. So the core issue here is equality, is protection against discrimination in effect. Cashless business, your proposal therefore is? I'm introducing legislation that would require every food and retail establishment in New York City to accept cash payments. It would prohibit discrimination based on method of payment. We talked about education, segregated schools, New York City, the disgrace of New York City being a segregated school system. What's being done there? You know, there have been some improvements at the margins. There have been some rezonings in select neighborhoods like the Upper West Side or Park Slope. But the city lacks a comprehensive vision and plan for desegregating the school system. And the mayor himself refuses to even use the word segregation. Like, how can we solve, how can we confront institutionalized racism in public education if we're not even willing to acknowledge that the problem exists? And this is Mayor de Blasio, into whom people put such hope, not only because he appeared to be a man of conscience, but because he is also married to an African-American woman and has biracial children. And so the hope had been that he would understand some of the stresses that people of color were facing in New York City. So in a contemporary scene where we have Mario Cuomo as governor and Bill de Blasio as mayor, we are still facing a situation where people will not deal with New York's segregated school system. Correct. And not even those who claim to be progressive, claim to care about the poor and the vulnerable, because many of them benefit from a segregated school system, right? If you are a progressive white parent who bought expensive real estate in an expensive neighborhood, your children will have privileged access to one of the best schools in the city. And your privilege comes at the expense of students of color who are languishing in struggling schools. So as a member of the city council, how are you looking at that? And what are you thinking needs to be done? I'm raising awareness about that segregation is too serious a problem to ignore. It's a deep rot at the very core of New York City's identity. And so for the past five years, I have been advocating for integrating classrooms because my belief is that the road to racial equality runs through racially integrated neighborhoods and racially integrated classrooms, right? The notion that we are going to achieve equality and excellence within a segregated school system is a politically convenient fiction. And I even have legislation that would establish within the Human Rights Commission an office of school 
examine which policies and which practices from the Department of Education have the effect of exacerbating segregation in New York City. Now, education policymakers will claim that segregated schools are nothing more than a reflection of segregated neighborhoods. And that's only partly true, but it's equally true that our schools are more segregated than our neighborhoods, and the segregation has largely been a product of policy choices that we have made as a society. I am the grandmother of a nine-year-old who is about to enter middle school. And I know from personal experience that had my daughter not had the skills that she has, then the whole process of this lottery system almost in terms of where you go to junior high school, I can't imagine what a parent who doesn't have the level of education and the level of knowledge of how to go through, you know, bureaucracies, work one's way through bureaucracies and mounds of paperwork and testing and even driving out to where to go for the test that will qualify one for certain programs that would enhance her education. And she does not actually live in a bad district. She lives in the district of one of the best elementary schools in the city. But taking that next step, if the family did not have those skills and assets, I can't imagine, as I was saying, including having to take these tests in the time in which we need it, where the nearest test-taking site is, means they have to drive to New Jersey. So when we're not in the middle of this to understand the mountains, the barriers, to just saying, as you would in a small town, okay, you graduated from elementary school, now you go to middle school, and understanding it is not that at all in our major cities these days. It's structurally unsustainable in a civil society. No, I agree with you. And, and all the avenues of admission, school admission that we pursue, confer advantages on largely wealthier white families. Right, whether it's admission by testing, right, those who can afford test prep yep. tend to have the most advantage, or it's zoning by zip code or location, where we're effectively reproducing neighborhood segregation in the classroom, or zoning by choice. You know, choice, it sounds egalitarian, but in real life, those who have the most resources and the most information tend to have the best choices and can game the system in the manner that you described previously. And those who have the least information and the least power tend to have the worst choices. And so even a system of pure choice, which sounds egalitarian, perpetuates the same social dynamics that sustain a segregated school system. In these last minutes, is there something else that you would like to add that I might not have thought to ask you? Whenever I tell my story, I make a point of mentioning that I've struggled with depression and I continue to struggle with depression. I take an antidepressant every day, right, just to show that you can struggle with mental illness and be a productive and law-abiding and respected member of society. And I want to put to rest this dangerous myth that depression is a character failing or a moral failing or a sign of weakness. It's a condition that people live with, that people manage. And uh, I heard a professor put it well, faulting someone for struggling with depression is like faulting a diabetic for lacking insulin, right? It's absurd. So I hope that my story can be an inspiration to those who have struggled with mental illness in their lives, that I can show them that there is a path to overcoming. I think it's better to live a life of overcoming and struggle than to live a life of perfection because you'll learn far more. And what you have learned in a life of struggle economically, educationally, societally, health-wise, seem to be the gifts of strength to you and the gift of mission that you have brought to those of us who are privileged to hear you, to meet you, to have you as our city councilman. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Our guest, New York City Councilman Richie Torres. Thank you. After our taping, two headlines broke. New York City Housing Authority, NYCHA, plans to raise funds to maintain public housing by leasing public housing land to market rate developers. And the deal to bring Amazon's new distribution center to Long Island City, a Queensboro section of New York City, 
with the promise of 50,000 potential jobs in exchange for billions of dollars in actual tax subsidies. Here's the councilman with an update. The sound quality is poor, but his message strong. You know, one of the rallying cries of our time is Black Lives Matter. And nowhere has there been a greater devaluation of black and brown life than in public housing. And the New York City Housing Authority, which manages public housing in New York City, has been so systematically starved of funding that it's been thrown into a state of fiscal desperation. Right, the leadership of NYCHA feels as if it's been left with no choice but to lease out public housing land for private development in a desperate attempt at generating revenue for repairs. It's worth noting that public housing has what is known as a towers in the park structure, which means that it has quite a bit of quote-unquote underutilized land. So New York City is going to have market-rate luxury development standing right beside dilapidated public housing. What message does it send to the world that New York City is erecting a visual tale of two cities? What psychological impact will it have on tenants who will see luxury towers being constructed while their own homes are crumbling in disrepair? Now, I'm just really struck by that, and, and it feels almost personal, you know, and I've never lived in public housing. But that kind of duplicity, that kind of hypocrisy, that kind of resetting, rejiggering of priority, that is what I am hearing. At the same time that we have this announcement, the nation has heard about it, the issue of Amazon coming to New York City and the tax incentives, huge tax incentives. Amazon being symptomatic because these are tax incentives that are regularly, as we know, provided to major corporations at the same time saying that we don't have the tax base to help house the job force that powers the city. So why? (laughs) Why? You, You hit the nail on the head. I mean, it represents a tragic almost criminal misplacement of priority. New York City is the wealthiest city in the world. What we're lacking are not resources. What we're lacking is political will. And it's a real indictment of our city that we are more committed to corporate welfare for a trillion-dollar corporation than we are to safe, decent, affordable housing for half a million New Yorkers who call NYCHA home. Right? The, the $2.5 billion check that we're handing to Amazon could provide every resident with heat and hot water could pay for new boilers and new distribution systems, new heating systems. What we need is a radical redistribution of resources in the direction of working people. So here we are. It's 2019, something that I'm going to be talking about a lot this year. It is the 400th year since the first documented boatload of people in chains were brought to these shores. 400 years later, we still can't get this thing fixed. The lies that were told then, the accommodations made then, we're still stuck with now. I go there because of what you said about what it represents in terms of people of color, this imaging. Um, And we know it's not just people of color who live in public housing, but still, is there a difference between public housing for whites and public housing for people of color? Well, it's hardly an accident. Public housing was originally created for largely white veterans returning from World War II. But as more people of color came to call public housing home, it became far more underfunded. Right? And we saw in the mid to late 20th century a disinvestment from cities in favor of suburbanization, right? a disinvestment from rental housing in favor of home ownership. We're a country that provides massive subsidies to home ownership, right? Nearly every homeowner receives a subsidy from the federal government, but that's hardly true of rental housing. Most rental housing is unsubsidized. So again, there's a misplacement of priorities that favors the rich over the poor. It's a manifestation of racism. Uh, Structural racism remains a fact of life in our city and in our country. So at this point, 2019, where do we go from here? I know we can't solve it all, but... The baby step that we take for 2019, what do you think it needs to be? We have no choice but to make every effort to move the ball forward, right? We're not going to eradicate structural racism from American society, at least not overnight. 
right? But we can ensure that people have the foundations on which to build a decent life, that people have access to a quality education, to health care, to transit, to fresh food, to safe, decent, affordable housing, to a strong safety net that can catch them whenever they fall, whenever any of us fall. That's what I want to devote my career to public service is building upon those foundations. As we taped this, an email came to me. The subject header was, New York City gave a year's rent to homeless families. What went wrong? And it points out that New York City had sent some homeless families to substandard, uninhabitable apartments in New Jersey. And, of course, it then is just said, well, the program didn't work. The messaging probably will not be New York City failed in the structure of what it intended to do. So something like that, practically, how is that being handled or reconfigured? Specifically the... This this issue, this specific issue of these homeless families who were sent to uninhabitable apartments in New Jersey. So they were sent out of the city. Yeah. They were totally otherized and sent out of the city. Um, I'm, I'm wary of relocating homeless families outside New York City. Right? It seems cruel to alienate people from their own city, from their own community, from their own roots. You know, We have to ensure that the families in shelter have a smooth transition to permanent affordable housing. And those families often require rental assistance because most people are in the shelter for reasons relating to affordability, right? A few people are there for reasons relating to domestic violence or mental illness or chemical addiction, but the vast majority of people in our shelters are there because they could no longer afford market rate rent. So we have to ensure that those families have sufficient rental assistance to transition successfully to long-term permanent affordable housing, the trouble that these families often face is a phenomenon known as source of income discrimination. There are a number of landlords who Excuse refuse... Excuse me, would you say that again, please? It's, it's known as source, source of income discrimination. Source so, of income discrimination. So there are a number of landlords who refuse to accept government forms of assistance. So even if you have the money to pay the rent... Right. If it comes in the form of Section 8 or FEPS or some government program, there are landlords who discriminate against those tenants, those, those government recipients. And, and so those who have government rental assistance programs often face real barriers to accessing permanent housing because of source of income discrimination. We have laws on the book that prohibit source of income discrimination, but there's been a lack of enforcement. Well, issues of discrimination of all kinds in New York City are so long-standing yeah. that it's de rigueur. To your point, we have to ensure that it's not enough that the residents have access to housing. We have to ensure that there are housing quality standards that those units. Housing are quality standards, and what I'm also seeing is that when you take a person who is any city-based, and as it yeah. says in in this case. In the form of a program the city introduced last year, special one-time assistance, the city would pay a year of rent up front to landlords in and outside the city. If a landlord knows they're going to be paid for a year um, by the city, then they also know that whether they maintain the apartment or not, the tenant has no leverage over whether or not the apartment is maintained in good standing. That's one problem. The second problem I see is that when you otherize that person sending them outside the city, then what about their source of income? How, how do they work? You know, it sounds great. You've been given a year to get yourself together, but it is taking you from whatever your base is. So, you know, the program uh, that works best is Section 8 because if an apartment fails to comply with Section 8 standards, the city or whoever's administering the program will suspend the subsidy, right? So you're hitting the landlord where it hurts in his pocket. And the landlord cannot bring legal action against the tenant if the city is suspending the subsidy. So it creates a real incentive for the landlord to make repairs. Not every program operates that way, but Section 8 is, is effective 
at getting landlords to make repairs because it punishes them where it, where it matters most in their wallet. These problems are far more complicated than most people realize, right? It's not only about ensuring that we're providing people with access to safe shelter in the event of homelessness, but we have to transition them to permanent affordable housing. We have to ensure that those families have sufficient rental assistance. We have to ensure that those families are protected from source of income discrimination. We have to ensure that the permanent housing into which those families are moving are safe and decent and compliant with housing quality standards. There's just so much, so many moving parts when it comes to homelessness and housing, and the problems are far more complex than people realize. Today on the Janice Adams Show, New York City Councilman Richie Torres. Our thanks to him and to you for joining us today. For more about today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what... Children are killing frogs. Poor dumb rednecks rolling logs. Tired old ladies kissing the dogs. I hate the human love of that steep.